0: From RTE Radio, I'm Neil Sheridan and, hey, Playback Daily is back! Luckily nothing particularly interesting happened since we were off air, so Hmm, let's see if I still remember how to do this.
1: I linked up with him and helped him get his boat back on track, and then I sailed off over the horizon with him. Did you? It was yes, yes.
2: At that stage, we could hear the anthems, and uh, it, was, it was really upsetting actually because like we were there, but we just couldn't get in.
3: And I was a cleric, and you know I used to park my bike down beside. you were a cleric, thing. yeah. Four years Were you? Yeah I you didn't sh- know that yeah, I didn't <laughs> know that not, not a lot of people <laughs> <No>. knew. <laughs> I certainly never told me why <laughs> Coming up
0: on this edition of Playback Daily How to build and paddle your own canoe What to do if you're set upon by a waterhound And 50 years of Horselet's debut album The Thorn. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's back and better than ever Okay well it's back at least This morning's Ryan Sorry 9 o'clock show began with this week's host Brendan Courtney talking about his weekend and well let's let Brendan take it from here
4: I packed up a little bag and threw the dog and Adam into the car <laughs> and we spun off down to Wicklow way we went to Glendalough it's actually I have to be honest just so soul cleansing. I'm all hippy dippy today. There's a lot of a lot about natural world today on the show, uh, but we we hiked Lugnaquilla, and uh, yeah, I'm boasting about that. I'm delighted with myself. I'm looking for my blue Peter badge, and um, we uh, we took our time. We had a great time, and we met some really amazing people. Lugnaquilla, I think, is the highest mountain in Wicklow. People will tell you that, um, and it's quite steep. Uh, and we went actually from the Glen of Imall. It's called the Glen of Imall. I kept calling it the Glen of Imall Cooney. <laughs> so I make everything glamorous. It was amazing and uh, there was something in the air on Saturday. Um, we were halfway up and I met a woman called Sabina Reddy and she asked could we have a little chat? I said yeah she's from Kilcullen and they were doing it to, they were doing the hike to raise money for a, a, ch- a Chinese orphan's charity where they educate and feed 70 children in just outside Beijing in China and it's a charity based in Glenco- Kilcullen. People are brilliant aren't they? Um, then I met Mary Fitzgerald I want to give her a shout out. Mary Fitzgerald Gerald, I uh, was a fine woman, really funny, um, and said, there you are, Brendan. I said, there you are. How are you? Nice to meet you. And she was with the walking group. So I said, uh, who's who's the walking group? And she said, I don't know. Just tagged along with them. <laughs> I said, fair play to you, Mary. And so Mary just tagged along this very friendly walking group whose names I didn't get, obviously, but we we saw her on the way back down a little chat again. And I said to her, do you often... Tag along to walking groups you don't know about. You all the time for safety, and you know she she walks on her own, and you can get lost up on that mountain. Obviously, it's very big. I thought that's very sweet, and I wondered it was it a uniquely Irish thing that we tag along without an invite. speak <laughs> something I do um, with the people. I just thought, what else are, are other uniquely Irish things we do? Um, anyway, after the hike, we came down, and this is not so uniquely Irish, but it's uh, um, something smug. We had a we had a sauna. So there's a thing called Busca Baja, obviously the box of life. And Busca Baja is owned by, she's now a friend of ours, Shirley. And it's down the end of the field and it's right beside a cold water river. So you plunge into the cold water, then you have a sauna. It's supposed to be very good for you. And she's been there for, for us as long as we've been going there, about eight years. We've been It's a converted horse cart, as I said, a, a little sauna. It's really cute. But Saturday, and I tell you what was in the air. It was Equinox on Saturday. Did you know that? I, and I, I'm fascinated by equinox. I'm only learning about it and I am I'm, I'm, I dived into a bit of research. So equinox is when the sun is directly above the equator and daytime and nighttime are the exact same lengths, exactly 12 hours each. So it's about balance. And when I was in the sauna on Saturday, a very interesting human sat beside me and we're both sitting there in a in beachwear basically in our shorts and, uh, you know, brow top and pants that she was wearing and uh, she turned out to be a, a pagan high priestess. It blew my mind.
0: Hikes, saunas and witchcraft? How could the weekends of us mere mortals even begin to compare? But wait, Brendan's weekend isn't finished because last night his aunt arrived and, well, that somehow leads us to Dame Joan Collins.
4: My aunt Anya who's listening, who's flying back to Brighton today, a wonderful woman. She's my godmother actually, my mum's younger sister and I cooked, cooked Prawns in what can only be described as a truckload of garlic. Like, literally, I chopped about, like, you know, the actual bulb. I did the whole bulb. So, <laughs> Ailid, she's making phony faces. You did not like the look of that. But I love garlic. I love it. But the problem, I got up this morning to 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 come out to RTE and the house stank. <laughs> like, really, there was three of us eating garlic. Even the dog stank of it. And brilliantly, so if you're listening on, yeah, you, you didn't stink. Don't worry. It's just me and Adam. You're amazing. I came across uh, and I heard it somebody mentioned earlier, but I just wanted to give a little note to my aunt if she's feeling a bit paranoid about you because she did comment. She says a lot of garlic in this as her eyes watered. So uh, you can get rid of your garlic breath. It can be fixed by eating natural yogurt. Thanks to its neutralizing proteins, scientists say. Researchers have discovered that proteins found in whole milk, plain yogurt work well to neutralize the sulfur based compounds that can cause the smell. So there you go. There's no natural yoghurt in the fridge on you. So you're going to have to pop to the shops if you want to get rid of the garlic. Sorry. But just like, there's a cure. I don't have the medicine. Anyway. Uh, now, not that my aunt needs. She looks amazing. She's fantastic. Um, and we actually, we, d- we went on to the the sordid world of plastic surgery and my aunt has had nothing done. Nothing done. She's amazing. And not that she needs to know because she doesn't need anything done. But Joan Collins spills her surprising beauty secrets. She's a new book coming out and Collins I'm just looking at a picture of her here now. She is stunning, as we all know. She's 90. She's amazing. She's amazing. She has, she's releasing a new book and she's setting the record straight about whether she's hot, had any work done. Really? Dame Joan Collins has opened up about her beauty rituals and best kept secrets, including she uses a very cheap cleanser, just 5 50 And she always, her, t- her big secret is she sleeps on her back. I'll just leave that there in the air for a minute. Uh, So, a lot of people think I've had a ton of work, the Golden Globe winner wrote. Uh, To set the record straight, she says, I have not. The outspoken star continued, I haven't had Botox, I haven't had uh, tweakments, I haven't had fat injections and honestly, I look at the women who have and certainly a lot of women in their 40s and it appalls me. She's not into it. I also always, always, as she said, sleeps on her back. She's trained herself to sleep on her back because you get, she says, and it's it's a quote, you get scrunchy face. (laughs) I have scrunchy face all the time. Um, so she she applies moisturiser every time she washes her hands. And uh, she really doesn't. She just And she's very, very careful about what she eats. But she's 90 and she looks amazing. I actually interviewed John Collins once. Um, and I brought my mother because my mother's a huge fan. This is about, five, about 10 years ago, I'd say, maybe. It was when we were doing Off the Rails. So we got access to interview John Collins. And uh, she was sitting there and her, her husband at the time, I think he's still her husband. I can't remember. I don't, I, he was a really nice, charming man. And he sort of was introducing her. She was sitting there and she was just staring at my mother. Mom's sitting beside Mom and she looks at Mom and she said, You're not press, are you? <laughs> mom said, No, I'm not. And she looked at me and looked back at my mom. And Joan Collins said to my mother, Is that your boyfriend? And my mother just let it hang in the air. I was like, No, it's not. No, I'm not. I'm her son. <laughs> and my mother sort of was delighted that Joan Collins thought she might be dating a younger man. Anyway, she was really charming. And she's she, 90. She looks fantastic. Fair play to her.
0: That's Joan Collins and Brendan's Aunt Onya, as well as Brendan's mum, to be added to the weekend that just won't quit. Meanwhile, well, we need to talk about dogs, apparently.
4: If you follow me on social media, you'll see, like, constantly post pictures of my beautiful dog I never don't get an opportunity to mention Nancy Drew Nancy Drew's my little rescue Jack Pug Chihuahua Make beautiful little face I mean, she's just beautiful I was saying like I post her so much I was like I wonder am I infringing her copyright I wonder like is it illegal to post that much I, I'm, I'm dog mad actually and funny where we were at the sauna yesterday up in Glen Millure in Buscaba uh, Shirley has a dog called Nim beautiful dog I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of crazy about dogs so this story really Caught my attention. Crocodiles in India pushed a stray dog to safety after it fell into a dangerous river filled with crocodiles. Scientists believe this rare rescue is a sign that the fearsome reptiles may be capable of compassion. In a, an apparent example of interspecies compassion, a group of croc- crocodiles appeared to usher a dog to safety after it fell into the dangerous river. The dog was believed to be a stray, was being chased by a pack of other feral canines when it jumped into the river in India out of harm's way, or so it thought. But the river was infested by the local mugger crocodile. I like to call them mugger crocodiles, and three of them were floating near the stray. Uh, however, the crocodiles appeared to usher the dog back to safety on the shore. They they were actually touching the dog with their snouts and nudging it, and you can see. It, I'm looking at a picture here. The dog is obviously looking terrified as the crocodiles are nudging him back to safety. Animals are just great. And one of the little just can't resist this. Psychologists to investigate meerkats' response to human emotions. I love meerkats anyway. But they're going to study, the team wants to better understand the potential effect people have on zoo animals. They're going to study meerkats and see if they can pick up if people are happy, sad or angry. I'll be glued to that. That's uh, that's really is how easily I am entertained. I absolutely love animals. And if you want to see a picture of Nancy Drew, she's on Instagram with her today. She looks great. She was laughing at one of my jokes. I kid you not.
0: Brendan and his dog Nancy Drew, who's a very forgiving audience by the sounds of things. And that's the monologuing from this morning's nine o'clock show. Done with. Onwards. Oh, and upwards. Now, with all four Rugby World Cup groups currently being topped by Northern Hemisphere sides, Claire Byrne posed the question this morning, has the balance of power in world rugby changed? There to give his opinion was former Irish international Bernard Jackman. And after first lauding Ireland's performance against the Springboks, Claire moved to questions about Australia's decline.
5: I just want to take a listen to this clip. This is the coach Eddie Jones talking to the Australian media overnight, and he was facing repeated questions about this rumour whether he's going to go back to Japan or not.
3: I I really take umbrage at the questioning that people are questioning my commitment to coaching Australia. I really take umbrage at it. Um, Yeah, I've been working non stop since I've come here. and I apologise for the results. I keep saying that. But to doubt my commitment to the job, I think, is a bit red hot.
5: He went on then to say he's going to walk out if they continue to ask him yeah. about um, Japan. Very, very unhappy man. Understandably,
6: He's under massive pressure. I mean, that performance yesterday was probably... Well, it was the worst performance Australia have ever had in a World Cup cycle. And it's, in some ways, it's sad to see. I mean, I'm so happy to see, a Fiji, like like Fiji make big progress, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and they are, and they are now genuine contenders. And um, and obviously, they, they beat Australia, but maybe that form doesn't look as good now. But they are, they they put Wales to the pin in their collar. But the problem for us in, in rugby is... Uh, you know, we, we need to have more teams are competing. So if Fiji progress and Australia degress, are, uh, that's no good either, you know, and um, the game in Australia, the only different, the only advantage Australia have is they have a chance financially because in two years' time they have a Lions tour coming to Australia and in four years' time they have a home World Cup. Yeah. The financial st- status of, of Australian rugby is in dire straits. They tried to refinance their, their debts and private equity laughed at them so they've had to go back, they have to try and find alternative funding. But They do have income that's going to come in over the next four years between the Lions and the World Cup. But they need to maximise that. They need to have a plan to save Australian rugby because at the moment, it's falling further and further behind. And it's not all Eddie Jones' fault. But the problem was that Australian Rugby Union made a big decision to sack the the coach Dave Rennie in January when Eddie Jones became available on a five-year deal. And they expected to get a boost and they've actually got a a bigger slump. And uh, I I met lots of Australian fans over at the World Cup, and, I mean, they are just so demoralised by what's happening. And it's not just... When I saw them at
5: 75 minutes, and I can understand why you would do this to a certain extent, standing up, like you've travelled to be in... France yeah. from the other side of the world, and you're standing up to leave the stadium at 75 minutes. It's incredible, it's incredible sight. Last and uh,
6: their players afterwards. It was a very young squad, and he picked a young squad, so he can't. That's the problem. A little bit is that he's saying we didn't have enough experience, but he chose to go with a very young squad. But the squad afterwards were devastated. You know, men crying on the field. It's not that I don't care, but for whatever reason, and it didn't help that it, the story broke. 24 hours before they played Wales uh, in the biggest game in in Australia's history that he had had a Zoom call with the Japanese Rugby Union. I mean, and the problem as well is he's come out and denied it to a certain extent. But before he got the England job, he actually, he was a Stormers coach for 72 hours. Okay, so, and actually I I was with a guy, Dylan Laidze on Friday night at a dinner and he told a story about Eddie Jones. So Dylan Laidze was 23 or four. he plays for La Rochelle now, he's won two European Cups. And Eddie Jones started on a Monday had signed a four-year contract. It was after Japan had got to the World Cup uh, quarterfinals. And uh, he called Dylan in and, and said, look, I'm going to build this franchise around you. You are the superstar. Over the next four years, I'm going to bring you to the top of the world. He came in the next morning, he got a, a WhatsApp message, crisis meeting at 12 o'clock. Eddie Jones was gone. You know what, hmm. what I mean? And that's... So the problem with him is he has broken contracts in the past. And maybe Australia are better off without him now because he's so damaged. Um, but it's for the people who hired him it's uh, it's a very worrying situation.
5: The timing though, you know, the judgment to yeah. hold that meeting at this point in time, it, Crazy. it doesn't say no, a lot. No, it
6: doesn't say a lot and, th- and he talks about commitment. He does work very hard but um, that's not a good sign.
5: Mm-hmm. And this flip then that people are talking about, Northern Hemisphere, yeah. Southern Hemisphere, is that real and true or does it go back to the home advantage well
6: thing? if we play New Zealand at quarterfinal we, we, we'll find out pretty quickly there's definitely a shift to be honest I mean Ireland going in number one in the world uh, France uh, two in the world Scotland five in the world going into this competition I mean um, we, we used to fear the Southern Hemisphere teams. We yeah. don't anymore. I mean, we beat Spring Bo- the Springboks in November. We've beaten the All Blacks in in New Zealand. Obviously, we beat them in Chicago. Beat them in Dublin. So that aura of invincibility is is gone, which is great for us, but it's bad for them. Um, and also financially. And I'm sorry to keep bringing back the money, but the financial status of the Southern Hemisphere teams is really poor. Not just Australia, who I mentioned. The New Zealanders are very reliant on private equity money. They're very reliant on being able to get two million off. Off, the, off Ireland to play a match in Chicago you know th- these exhibition games yes. and you only get that when that aura of the all black jersey is special and mm-hmm. it's a big thing I mean if you if they start to lose well then you don't get to charge that kind of money and at the moment that's um, that's funding a lot of the game plus at domestic level and schools level and club level in New Zealand a lot of kids aren't playing anymore because of concussion um, and the fear of it fear of it yeah so uh, so that was always the number one game in New Zealand and ironically Basketball is now growing in popularity because three New Zealanders are playing in the NBA. So
7: it's you know, interesting. Isn't had, it? it was
6: always a closed environment, like it was a, a closed island to a certain extent. Rugby was their game, and no one ever thought that would change. But mm-hmm. things change, you know. What I mean? And uh, so it's, it's it is worrying. And also, the South Africans have come to Europe, so the South African teams now play in the URC, and they don't play against the New Zealanders or the or the Australians. So the level of competition that they were getting nine months of the year isn't the same as it is now.
5: Can I just go back to that point you made about um, concussion? Because it has been in the news a lot. Now, we'll expect off the back of this World Cup that there'll be loads of children who want to go and play rugby. But then you've got to weigh that against parental fears around that very issue of concussion. Do you think it's affecting the numbers who are coming into the game?
6: No, the, the clubs are... Are packed with kids. Mini rugby uh, is overflowing. Of course, there's people and parents who who aren't sending their kids. Of course, there's parents who are concerned about their kid playing rugby. But I think I think the environment. What what do you see on a, on a Saturday at the World Cup? The collisions, the physicality, the the violence. Um, that doesn't happen thankfully in the domestic game Mm. I mean these players are are trained um, you know in the gym out of the gym technically etc to be able to to do what they do and actually just on that game at the weekend it was probably the most physical game I've seen in the last 10 years and there wasn't one head high contact I mean that was the that was the example that should be sent to everyone else that if you you can play physical but also have safe technique which is brilliant um, but just on the to go back to the schools and, and, and the underage I think the level of coaching now the level of understanding around concussion um, has improved so much that it is still a very safe environment.
0: Former Irish international Bernard Jackman talking about a seeming new world order in rugby with Claire Byrne this morning. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of Horselip's album The Thawne. And band members Jim Lockhart and Barry Devlin came into the studio to chat about The Thawne and the band in general with Ray Darcy this afternoon.
8: Did you meet in UCD or where did you meet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What were you
9: studying? I was doing economics and politics, God help me. And we we, we were both in the Cummins around Meekta. He was doing pure English, I think.
3: And Jimmy was also part of the SDA. When they occupied the the college, I was sent down to the place where the priests used to come (laughs) in, and I was a cleric. And you know, I used to park my bike down beside. you were a cleric, thing. yeah, four years. Were
9: you? Yeah. Well, I, you I didn't know that.
3: Yeah, I didn't know that. Not, not a lot of people
8: <laughs> <No>. do. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly never tell me why. What. <laughs> <laughs> what happened then? What he came sorry. down to horizon. No, I want to know about you being a cleric. I'm not <laughs> oh, interested in him protesting. <laughs> oh, I right, like well, yeah, yeah, the black yeah.
9: didn't suit him. Yeah. No, I, well,
3: I, yeah, I, I. When I was seventeen, I went off to join the Manuth Mission to China. Right. So-called because it wasn't in Manuth and it didn't go to China. <laughs> right. It was in Dalgan. It was in Dalgan Park near. Navan, and it went to Peru and the Philippines, and I had some notion of being, you know, of muscular Christianity that I would build shanty towns. Right. And if you've ever seen me putting up a shelf, you'd know
8: that. the And, p- and had somebody come to your secondary school to yes. recruit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And i uh, he was brilliant. Yes, he, they're always the most charismatic. And yeah. I had a vision of me in a range
3: in, in a Land Rover careering across
8: the plains of Africa, <laughs> right. pursuing large heaps of uh, uh, herds of wildebeest. And of course, at the time. Family and friends would have been very proud of the fact that you were seeking a vocation. My sisters laughed for years
3: <laughs> they, and and <laughs> right. and, and they, they they were having none of it. Right. Uh how are you this morning <laughs>
8: Priestine was like And when did when did it dawn on you that you were you were having none of it?
3: Hey uh, I yeah it took me a while it yeah, took four, four years, years I, for, for religion for slow learners in my case but <laughs> it, it took me about 4 years to figure out that possibly there wasn't anyone in the porta cabin and uh, so I you know I, I I actually it was quite difficult leaving. My father was delighted, my mother was yeah, you know, she, right. she nearly had a son in the in the uh, Jesuits. Uh,
8: where where were you from? Where Terone? A parish called Arbo,
3: right on the shores of Loch So a small enough parish. Oh. So, yeah, it's a, yeah it's, it it's would a, have been
8: big news that the young Devlin fellow was going to the priesthood. It would, but yes. it wouldn't have been that
3: surprising because basically I was a kind of an odd kid. So right. you know, it, when I then showed up in platform shoes and a, <laughs> and a, and a four-coated mass, <laughs> all the worst predictions were were uh, were absolutely. You know yeah. justified. I knew he'd never be any good, you know. Yeah,
8: because the Horse Lips were there were sort of a, a an amazing, wonderful fusion of glam rock, prog rock, and traditional Irish music. Yeah,
9: you came for the platforms and stayed for the hornpipes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was very peculiar because there was all this kind of leopard skin. I mean, I actually had skin-tight leopard skin trousers. God forgive me. Yeah. Um And like knee-high boots with triple platforms. knee high boots, I think. knee Um And yeah, crimes against passion. Uh, crimes against fashion. fashion. Rather, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it was, I mean, like that was even the the kind of the glam stuff was a bit of a... A statement because everything was so po-faced, you know, I mean, you had to kind of be, you had to be a bit dour to be kind of, uh, anyway, kind of accepted. There was a time like in, we had been coming out of a time like in the 50s uh, and like right up to, right up to the time of the Clancy's in the early 60s and um, anything to do with traditional music or folk music, you couldn't get arrested unless you were John McCormick in a, in a tuxedo on a mm-hmm. concert platform going, Macoosh la, um, and so, uh, when the, the 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 glam stuff and the, the Lurex trousers was kind of uh, two fingers to all of that, yeah. And the kids, thankfully, got but, it. I mean, a lot of people see, didn't get it. A lot of people thought that this was just like too too kind of irreverent altogether and not to be dealt with. Mm. But the kids kind of got it and said, "Jesus, this is grand." But it and worked. They liked the because stuff.
8: we played the high reel there to the start that, mm. and like you know, drop kick. <laughs> you know, those boys, oh yeah, a fortune, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. It's, I mean, it, it it ship, what does it, ship me up to Boston, or what, what's the name? The Dropkick Murphys. Yes,
9: yeah, yeah. yeah, and Flog and Molly, and. and it's but, yeah.
8: extraordinary how this what, stuff has spread. How know? did it happen? What, what were you doing? You know, it's like what, it's like what were you, you thinking know thinking. Who of? discovered <laughs> you could <laughs> milk? <in> the drugs <laughs> you were <laughs> exactly. <at> that time. <laughs> <laughs> Who discovered you could milk a cow? And what were they doing at the time? You know. <laughs> <laughs> who discovered you could you could you, could, you could fuse rock and and traditional music? And what were you doing at the time? You know. Yeah. Listen so, dude, <laughs> if we melt
3: down our horse, <laughs> it, it started that way. Yeah, it, it kind of know. you know it was, all, it was genuinely in our background. We we'd all been listening to Sean Oreda yeah. around 1960-61. I mean, you know, after the abdication of Edward VIII, I made a decision <laughs> that that I, that I should get into. No, it's just it's all so long ago, but <laughs> yeah, with apologies right. for anyone who's born in the last 80 years, we we kind of Sean Oreda was Really yeah, he was.
9: He was the real. He was the real game changer in 1959, 1960, when he did the music for Misha Era, because he'd um,
3: taken music that was absolutely the
9: province. Traditional layers, a, yeah, yes. and you had to have a serge suit yes, to okay. play them, and yes, I didn't yes. have a
3: serge yes, suit. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah,
8: yeah.
9: and but we knew that we could see that he had done
8: something. So there was different. a snobbery around, was there, around traditional? It wasn't so music. much a snobbery, yeah.
9: but it was kind of like it was. It was a name to conserve a tradition, and the guys who did it. Did did us all a great service yeah, because yes. they conserved this living and tradition. Alive, and we're pretty yeah, unique yeah, yeah. that we have a living folk tradition. Uh, there was there used to be a, a, a bad joke among Irish musicians playing English folk clubs years ago Say like what's the difference between an English folk club and a tub of yoghurt a tub of yoghurt's got a live culture <laughs> <laughs> very cruel you know but yeah. like we, we were blessed that we had had this live culture and it's still there and it's still incredibly vibrant and we owe it to those guys who just kept it going you know against when it was ne- really neither profitable nor popular and at one stage in the sort of late 50s Piper's Club was down the road from me in James Street, and like there were very few pipers, you could count them on the hand on one hand, you know, the very few pipers still going at that time. And um so they 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 kind of trod a lonely path. So I I, I get the fact yes. that they were a bit prickly about people messing with it because yeah, yeah. it was they were carrying they were carrying a Ming vase full of stuff and there were these guys jostling them. You know, yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean?
8: But, but you you were all great musicians and you did sort of you did respect that. But we you, tried you, to. Yeah. You wanted yeah, yeah. them. You wanted. Well, the, we
9: were we were doing other stuff with it. But, yeah. I mean, we had a lot of regard for what had been going on. Clearly, yeah. Uh,
0: The always entertaining Jim Lockhart and Barry Devlin of Horselets, talking about the 50th anniversary of the band's debut album, The Thawne, on this afternoon's Ray Darcy Show. Brendan Courtney was joined this morning by artist and ecologist Gwen Wilkinson, who set herself the task of building her own canoe and paddling the length of Ireland. That's 400 kilometres,
4: folks. Where did your love for boats and water begin? Where did that come from?
1: Oh, well, definitely it goes back to early childhood and my parents um, always had boats. They they had one of those wonderful big old Guinness barges okay. um, and we used to have summer holidays going around the Shannon and the Barrow. So I, I did sort of grow up around boats, but... Inland waterways boats, mostly.
4: I've done I've done a few of those uh, cruises up and down the yes. ship. It's amazing, fantastic. Th- yeah, and yeah, then yeah. Uh, during wow. COVID, we had the great pleasure of doing uh, kayaking up the Liffey. Oh, fantastic! So to see the city yeah, yeah. from the water, it's a yes. completely different experience, isn't it? it
1: it's ju- it's fantastic, and you know, and especially in a kayak, you know, you've no engines, so you've just lovely quiet. Yeah, it's it's really the essence of slow travel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and
4: people sort of comment about being in, for example, a city river. They think it's really yeah. really dirty, and it's actually it is dirty. You don't want to fall in. But yeah. it, it, once you're down there, it's actually OK. It's, it's really nice yes. to be at that level, on that eye level. Yeah, I really com- get it, yeah.
1: Completely different perspective so th- of the environment. hundred yeah. yeah. percent,
4: and we'll talk loads about that in a second. Yeah. But I really want to know, why did you want to build a canoe?
1: <laughs> Gosh, yeah. <I laughs> and build mean, a canoe,
4: that's the key, right?
1: To build a canoe. I mean, it, it all started um, from a one-day... Um, kayaking trip down the Barrow um, which is my local river and I just loved the experience so much I said I wanted to do more I wanted to explore the waterways more and um I needed a kind of a, a, a an easy way to do it. So it was winter time and you weren't really going to go canoeing then. So it just seemed a perfect time to try and um, challenge myself to, to build a canoe. I love making and um, creating things. So, it, you know, it was it was just a good challenge for me to, to do something a little different.
7: It's your happy place. Absolutely. <laughs> it's very yeah. Now, just
4: to take me back a step because I love the story of you You met a, a sailor. Yes, He's shipwrecked. I mean, this is so romantic. Yes. Yes. So, t- 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 well, How long ago was this now? Give us a set of scene.
1: OK, so <laughs> I, I was in um, university in Galway and um, I saw the news one evening. There was a, a South African sailor who was shipwrecked off the coast of Ireland. It happened to be off the coast of Galway and um, his boat was pulled into the harbour and myself and uh, other people went down to the harbour to see this exotic person come in in his boat and God. I linked up with him and helped him get his boat back on track and then I sailed off over the horizon with him. Did you? It was Yes, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it was very exciting. I mean I was dying, I, I was at that age where I was dying to go on ad- adventures and this was just a wonderful opportunity, yeah.
4: And you you went sailing all over the world for about six years with this. Yeah,
1: with yeah, this. yeah. We were we were racing the boat. He was wow. a professional yacht racer, so, um, we were kind of it's called campaigning. You kind of do different yacht races all over the world, and um, yeah, it was fantastic um, adventure. And I managed to learn to sail because I hadn't actually learned to sail, yeah. and um, I did two transatlantic journeys did on you? the boat, which was an incredible adventure for me. Um, How long does that take? Yeah, one of them took, it was over 35 days at sea without seeing land. It was quite extraordinary. And, you know, we just had to, it was just the two of us on board and we had to survive as best we could, rationing our food and water. So it's a real test of survival and skills and navigation and personality too. Yeah, Yeah, I
4: have to ask, did you get on okay? What, you
1: you really yeah. have to you Dig know you deep. have to make a big effort. Um, you know there were times I could get a bit ratty, all right, <laughs> <laughs> and I was probably the the weakest link uh, between the two of us. But um, you know you you have to make an effort to to make it work.
4: Yeah, yeah. Can you think of any of the high points or any of the low points? What well, was give us one of each. <laughs>
1: It was always quite exciting. I mean, the high points were um, definitely some of the wildlife encounters. Um, they were always really thrilling and exciting um, and also, kind of departing and arriving into port, uh, you know, um, from the sea is an amazing experience. Um, arriving into Uruguay and in South America it was it was, you know, it was quite an adventure. Yeah. So you really feel like you've done an amazing adventure.
4: <laughs> wow. So like your DNA is the sea and water, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, I would say the water. Yeah. I mean, you know, the sea is a tricky place to be. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I would never take it for granted. Um um, yeah, so, yeah, but definitely water and waterways. And and I mean, that's how the canoeing came about and then exploring rivers and canals.
4: Yeah. So you physically built your own canoe mm. and, and we all, we instantly think of someone chopping down a tree and carving out a tree. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's not what you did, though, right? Definitely I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I have a picture of the canoe here. It's quite smart looking boat now. It's not, yeah. it's not. doesn't look like, it looks like a lovely boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. It's beautiful. It's kind of a, a hybrid between a canoe and a kayak. Um, it's, an, it's a wooden canoe and it's an open canoe, so there's no decks in, uh, over it. Um, so I was able to carry all my camping gear, enough to survive on for about four days at a time inside the boat. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it was very simple. Um, I'd, I would needed very few tools to build it, very simple tools, a drill, uh, a hand saw and a plane. And that was it. You know, I didn't need any complicated machinery or anything. Really? So, yeah, yeah. And I just followed the plans and the manual, kind of like following a huge recipe. And I just kept going to the bitter end.
4: And you did it all by yourself.
1: Yeah. No
4: nails, no nails.
1: No nails in it. No, oddly enough, you do drill about three hundred holes, which was really difficult for me to do because <laughs> it's just very counterintuitive to drill holes in a canoe. But anyway, they do get filled eventually with with a, with a, um, a glue and a resin. So you know, yeah, I was I was just as surprised. I mean, it took me about four months to build it, and that was kind of over weekends and in the evening. And um, so I was as surprised as anyone when it actually floated and, yeah, and was useful, yeah.
4: Uh, How? Where did you get the design? Did you downloaded it, did you? Or?
1: I did. I mean, I did a good bit of research okay. online and I ended up with a design from America. Yeah, yeah. And, so.
4: and you just followed instructions? And
1: I just followed, wow. yeah. I bought the plans and, and the manual and it just walked you through it step by step. And it was, it was good, yeah.
4: So uh, making is in your DNA as well, obviously. Definitely. Is that in your family background?
1: It is, yeah. Oh, really? I mean, I mean definitely kind of three generations. My grandfather, um, who used to be a farmer, but then he kind of became a stonemason and carver. And, um, and my father also, he works in wood, but he does more kind of construction of, of buildings and such, yeah.
4: So you, you took four months, but you said you could do it quicker mm-hmm. if you wanted to, could you? Yeah,
1: well, you could. If you're working full time, absolutely. You could build it in a week or two two weeks even. yeah. Would,
4: would you recommend it? Did you did you love the experience making your own canoe?
1: It's amazing because, you know, you really become invested in it and you have this amazing piece. You know, you've mm. created this beautiful object that you could just hang on the wall if you wanted to over your mantelpiece. So, yeah, I mean, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah.
4: And in the picture, I can see a paddle. Did you make the paddle? Oh, no, I didn't. No, 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 <laughs> no. I was
1: dying to get out on the water at that stage. So I just said, give me the paddle quick.
4: Does she have a name?
1: Yes, it's called Minnow. I Minch. just
4: gendered your <laughs> canoe, I'm sorry. <laughs> do they have a name?
1: Does, does she, she? I know, there always seem to be she. It's yeah, no, funny. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: That was my instinct there, so it's, yeah.
1: Um. So she's called Minnow, yeah.
4: Oh, like a small fish.
1: little fish in a big pond, yeah. Oh, that's
4: yeah. lovely. Yeah. Really lovely. Um, wh- People can see it, can't they? You have a website, correct? I do, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So give us your website just so people, um, people want it, to look it's, it
1: up. It's GwenWilkinson.com and um, yeah, there's pictures up there of the canoe and the construction
0: glennwilkinson.com, talking to Brennan Courtney this morning about her adventures on the water as she paddled her own canoe the length of the country. Now, if you were asked to name the author of a book titled Wolfmen and Waterhounds, The Myths, Monsters and Magic of Ireland, chances are you'd say, is it Boncon McGann? And, listener, you'd be right. The folklore-drenched author joined Clairburn this morning to talk about his latest dive into Irish mythology and folktales.
5: Why do you think we need to reacquaint ourselves with these stories? So as
10: you were saying, even with the name like Wolfmen and Waterhands, it sounds like frightening. And we don't need to go back into the whole idea of, of, you know, nightmares and dark stories. But I think for some reason, our ancestors believed that the world was alive, was animated. And there were almost like portals or thresholds that you could access the other world. And that's a gorgeous idea because that reconnects us with the world, with, with Eye landscape again. And if we feel... you know, connected to our landscape, which obviously our ancestors have done as long as we've been here, for 6,000 years, maybe longer, you know, the the people who came before us. That means you sort of protect the land and that means you think about, oh, this land is actually a spirit and it's helping me and communicating me and I need to help it. That almost Mm. that indigenous idea that, you know, you give something to the soil and it gives something back. And I think that's what so many of these mystery stories in our culture are trying to tell us.
5: So the book is a bit of a, a guidebook of sorts, like a geographical guidebook to some of the portals and, and the thresholds that you talk about.
10: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's, I mean, in a way there are countless, you know, portals and thresholds because everywhere is either an entrance to the other world or to nOg or the Dagda, the, the great god of the Tuatha de Donnan or Eiru, the great goddess who became Ireland, either came out of or went into or arose from the river or arose from a hole or arose from the well. So everywhere. In every county, there are countless of these places where the the two worlds, the spirit world and the physical world blended. And I've just like selected like a small handful of them Mm -hmm. and illustrated them and told the stories about those. But it it actually humbled me to realise how many I was leaving. I was leaving like 99% aside and just taking a tiny amount. Plenty
5: more books in it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Let's um, look at a few of them and I've picked them out from, from the book. So in County Mayo, we have Ireland's Door to Hell, which they'll be delighted to hear about.
10: Yeah, exactly. So, Doris Ifran the Heron, that was a medieval concept. It was more, it's sort of, it's on the way to Mayo, and it's, it's it's called Oivnagat in Roscommon. And so, this was, it was, uh, you
5: entered. Oh, it's uh, in Roscommon, the gateway to Heron. Yeah, exactly, is it? exactly. Okay. Yeah. And well, it's, it's a, very
10: important to establish. It, indeed, yeah. But I only, f- I f- whenever I go across, it, it was when I'm going to Westport, as I always stop in it. And I'd always heard about this place and never found Like There was a lot of people who knew about it. But it was this area where Queen Maeve had her. Had their entrance way to, to, to go down into the other world. And there's like stories of a warrior coming along there and seeing Maeve's fort utterly destroyed and going, being led down to this cave and realizing that all of the, the soldiers and warriors that we killed were all there beheaded on spikes. So, in one way, it's a frightening image, but actually, what it's trying to say is that these warrior queens like Eru or Maeve or any of these were powerful people who connected this world and the other world and they had these entrance ways that you could go into and either seek protection or if you dared go in as an enemy you, you know you mightn't come out alive mm-hmm. so there was there was powerful and they were all connected so that one uh is connected to the the caves uh cash caves in sligo the stories of a young girl going in with a cow and again she's a girl and she's bringing a cow and a cow owes goddess thing so there's like way more to these stories than we can understand being pulled down into the cave from Nagat, from this cave of, of, into hell and being brought out into the otherworldly area in, in Sligo so it's just you know we have this real world and we have the other world And too.
5: then the the direction that you travel around Ireland in the book it's sunwise. Mm-hmm. So why is that important?
10: Yeah. So Deschel was the Irish for sunwise, and that was just because let's say we are a people who were either farming or fishing. So everything was to do with the direction of the sun, how the how the fish are moving in the in the sea, and of course how the plants are growing and what's happening. So still today in Gael'tacht there is if you are winnowing grain, now nowadays most is done with a machine, but even if you are throwing a net, you are doing it deshel, you're doing it sunwise. Like fishermen told me in the west of Ireland that they will anchor a boat and they will they will sort of, know pull off anchor and pull off a pier, always deshel, always sunwise. Because that's the way doing it in rhythm with the direction of the sun and the sun was a god. Mm-hmm. Like Dagda, the great god I'm talking about, uh, you know, the sites where he had these magical horses and chariots that pull the sun through the sky. Like, imagine that we still can go to elder, you know, older people in communities and they will tell stories about Dagda, a being, a god who was meant to pull the sun through the sky. That's like, that's mythic. That's the sort of stuff you'd only imagine to hear from Greek myths or from some indigenous tribe. And we still have
5: it, and and for you exploring that world, did you go in skeptical into it, or, or how do you feel about these myths and uh-huh. legends?
10: I went in utterly disconnected from it, and as conditioned, like I was brought up in Donnybrook, educated by Jesuits. There was no, and and by a, you know a granny and a family who were so Catholic, going to Donnybrook Church. So there was none of this ideas in me. I had been dissociated from it, but fortunately. Because I, because in this Donnybrook family, I spoke Irish, and I a quarter of the year I spent in West Kerry, and in West Kerry, those stories are still strong. Like Mount Brandon, you know where Saint Brendan is. Locals wouldn't have talked to Saint Brendan there, or they talked to Saint Brendan, but also of Crom Dove. The ancients, Crom means bent back, Dove black. The 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 bent back, stooped person who who dragged. The, the grain and the spirit of the land out from the mud under the ground and brought it up. And he was still talked about. He still is talked about in places. So I was struggling between my rational, logical, you know, UCD educated brain and this other element that I almost, that I could feel still alive in the Irish language and is still alive in the myths. Mm. You know, some of the myths we get in school are these washed down versions. Now- That's Monaco McGann talking to Claire Byrne about his new book Wolfmen and Hounds.
0: The Myths, Monsters and Magic of Ireland this morning. Alan travelled to Paris for the Ireland versus South Africa game over the weekend but things did not go according to plan. Alan spoke this afternoon to Katie Hannon on Liveline about his trip to Paris.
2: You know, the plan was just to go on the Friday and then, um, and then come back on the Sunday.
11: OK. So... If you are. Um, so, OK, so you, you're all you're all delighted. You're you know, you've got the, the match of matches uh, lined up. Um, the first bit of a disappointment came uh, a few days beforehand.
2: Yeah, uh, we got an email on Wednesday morning uh, just, just to, you know, maybe 48 hours before we were due to, to, to go to say that the, there was a problem with the 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 scheduling, I think, with baggage handlers and other issues due to the, I suppose, the, I think it was just so busy over, over the particular weekend in question. There were a lot of flights in and out to France and we got an email to say that our itinerary was changing and uh, it was changing on the Friday. We were due to depart at, uh, at 17.30, and the new departure time was 14.20. That wasn't too bad. A few hours beforehand, we, we were able to kind of deal with that. But we were due to return on Sunday night at 22.30 p.m., but, but the new departure date coming home on Sunday was actually 8 a.m. in the morning, which for us was really unacceptable. I mean, I think for a lot of the... Certainly for us and for maybe some of the other passengers, it's very difficult to get that news, given it was a late match on the Saturday night, it was nine o'clock uh, French time. So for most of us, we'd only get back to the hotels at maybe 12pm and then we'd have to, be, we'd need a 4am bus transfer to, uh, to Charles de Gaulle Airport. Okay, so like, so you, I mean, was, you were missing out,
11: out on a whole French day department. there basically?
2: We lost a whole day. Yeah. Okay. And this
11: is, and and as you got this email from uh, we can say, Cassidy Travel. That that's the uh, tour operator that you were dealing with.
2: It was. It was. And uh, and and uh, to be fair to Cassidy Travel, I, I did get a call from their general manager uh, earlier on today, uh, just to say that they're going to look into it for us, and uh, they'll they make 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 contact when they've when they've got the facts.
11: Okay, but uh, you know, so that's yeah. annoying. And uh, yeah. you know, and it kind of throws your weekend up in the air a bit. But that wasn't really what went. What was the major problem here? Because you you made it to Paris, uh, yeah. and uh, I, and you, we could see it from from the reports from Paris. Uh, it was just amazing atmosphere in the city, obviously ahead of the match.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we we had the build up on uh, on Saturday, and then. Uh, we, we showed up at the, at the venue uh, early because there were so many Irish people there. It was, it was, it was incredible, actually, and uh, we, we went to try and enter the ground and our ticket was invalid. It just, it just wouldn't let us in. Um, now, we thought it might be an issue because we were there so early that maybe due to crowd control they might, just, they might not let us in an hour and 20 minutes beforehand. So we, we hung around and we tried again. And we tried again. And by then it was kind of half eight with the nine o'clock, uh, you know, kickoff. And so we we were starting to panic at that stage. Sorry,
11: can I ask you, like when you, you were obviously at the turnstiles and you were, you were handing over, was there a language uh, barrier issue there in terms of were they able to explain to you what was going on?
2: There was, yeah. No, we, we they the, the just said no. It's invalid. The tickets just won't That's true. through. Um, and so there was a, a place to go, which is an information kiosk, which we went to, and we queued up there, and we got to the top of the queue, and the the chap said just contact your travel agent. And um, uh, I, I, we had the tickets printed off, uh, and we had the tickets on our phones. So we we tried to call the Cassie travel number, and uh, just just wasn't nobody was answering it. And sent them a number of text messages. I could see. They were certainly being sent and uh but just there was no there was no response so but we actually saw then some vanguard who had traveled over obviously for the for the game and they were very helpful they they did their best but th- there was nothing we could do at, at that stage we could hear the anthems and uh it was it was really upsetting actually because like we were there but we just couldn't get in and uh and and my wife Tina was quite kind of upset at that stage. So we just we just made our way back on the on the metro back back to our hotel. It was it was at that stage a half nine quarter to ten, and we just watched the second half of the match uh, uh, on oh. the French TV. You know. Oh uh, my God! Hotel. I can't
11: I can't imagine, uh, Alan. The that that metro ride back to the hotel. It just yeah. must have been.
2: Yeah. Look, look it, it was. Uh, Look, it, it, I know, like you know, it just it was just really upsetting because we had we'd kind of banked on this for the whole year, and uh, we we kind of booked with the travel agent because you know uh, we had the security of kind of booking with the referral company, and um, we were able to pay in installments, which which is handy, you know, because the the amount of money was it's kind of an eye-watering amount. It was, it's going kind to of two thousand one hundred seventy euros for the pair of us okay, to go j- oh, for two
11: days. Okay, say say that again. Two thousand one hundred.
2: Uh, and- uh, yeah we paid two thousand one hundred and seventy euros uh, we paid it in instalments over the course of the year but uh you know it's an awful lot of money uh for 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 like a weekend trip you know and um, so so like it's not it's not like it's it's a lot of money to... so I, I i also and i suspect most people out there
11: and when you were at the stadium well like you were obviously yeah. saying what's the problem here when 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 your ticket wasn't uh, yeah. being accepted were they able to give you any indication there of what the problem might be
2: no um, and 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 like you know it's one of my gripes. I guess like if, if there was a representative there to help us anyone you know inside the stadium uh, uh, is no good to us it, it's probably outside it's probably the better place for them to be and and i I would have liked if someone was there to help us you know uh, just to, to to kind of do something but there was nothing we could do and um, there was there was just nobody there now the, the guards were great the the we were dealing with they were fantastic but they couldn't do anything they were kind of hindered themselves but they did do their best. But all we could do was just like like what do what can you do, Katie? just like you're there. The match has started. Everyone's
11: inside, and you can hear you all the roaring fall. and the singing inside. And yeah,
2: oh. yeah. So uh, yeah. so we just went,
11: home. What a disappointment! That's Alan
0: telling Katie Hannan about his attempt to see the Ireland versus South Africa match in Paris over the weekend on this afternoon's live line. Dr. Susan Pike is busy. She's the Assistant Professor in Geography Education in the School of Education at Trinity College Dublin, as well as being Chair of the Local Organising Committee for International Geography Olympiad. She told Brendan Courtney, himself, something of a self-professed geography aficionado, about the Olympiad and the importance of geography as a subject.
12: Next summer, the world um, of geography is coming to Ireland. So, the International Congress, um, International Geography Congress, is coming to um, Dublin, and that means that the International um, Geography Olympiad for young people aged 16 to 19 mm-hmm. is also coming to Ireland. Both of those for the first time. So. We've never had um an Olympiad for um geography um, in Ireland. There's one for chemistry and one one for math. So it's it's literally like the Olympics for um for, for geographers. So um a group of teachers and lecturers came together as the committee and we decided that um, you know, we obviously we must have an Olympiad for geography, but we wanted to make it really inclusive. So mm-hmm. We've set it up as some challenges for young people um, that they can take part in, whether they're in um, primary school, post-primary school or special school, so.
4: Right, um, so um, there's a couple of things I want to... So first of all, you're Assistant Professor in Geography Education at Trinity College, yeah? I am. You are, but you uh, are—you're out in the field, literally, (laughs) as a geography teacher, encouraging people to be more involved. So, the Olympiad is 20 years old. The event, and you went to the Olympiad in Indonesia last year. Is that correct?
12: Yeah, yeah, and it was in Indonesia this summer. So it's it's an it's an amazing event where um, each country holds its own competitions, and they can do that in any way they like. So. In a second, I'll say how how we've decided mm-hmm. to do that, mm-hmm. and they take the the four students um that do the best in those competitions and um, and those those students um go to the olympiad um, wherever it may be, and it usually varies. you know very in, in different different places around the world, and this this summer it was in Indonesia. Yeah,
4: so and was it amazing? I was
12: um, really lucky to go there. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a cross between um, the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> and
4: the I Olympics,
12: and and lots of geography lessons. So um, it is it is it's it's a very serious event, as you could imagine. The students take part in an examination pretty much as soon as they get there, and they they also do field work and a multimedia test. So yeah, and the twentieth twentieth year for it. Amazing! It I actually was yeah.
4: really good at geography in school. I loved it. I just got it. I really good at geography. I really enjoyed it. Stalagmites, stalactites, you name it, I got it. Uh, so p- people who never excelled at geography wonder why this would matter to them. But you, you're yeah, you, yeah. you want you wanted to be more inclusive in all ages and abilities. Is that right?
12: Yeah. So if 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 people that are listening think of, you know, children they know, their grandchildren, their own children, their friends' children, children are really, really curious about the world. Um, I always say I wish I put a clicker on my own children when they were little because they used to ask so many questions, um, you know, about the wider world, but also about immediately around them. So we wanted to kind of harness children's curiosity. Um, And this is in in the curriculum anyway, that we would um, would ask teachers to... um, Get their the children in their class, the young people in their geography classes, to just just as a simple start to, to to draw a map of their their local area from their perspective, and to write about it. So that's 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 challenge one. That's really good. Um, and that's amazing. And we're inviting everyone to do that now. Love that. If you walked into a classroom and asked children. And young people about their locality, it, you'd you'd be there a while. You know, they have a lot to say about where they live, the the places, but the people as well, um, and that 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 community they live amongst. So yeah, we're just really drawing on their own curiosity.
4: Wonderful. And then, Go on, yeah, And please. then
12: there's there's other yeah there's other other challenges as well. So as as part of that, and um, we we're also saying to teachers if you, if you'd like to do this as well, um to get get children to um, map hopeful geographies in their area so, so yeah. in, a, in a time of climate change what are people doing um, around sustainability in their area so it might be you know it might be something simple like a recycling bin or it might be a community garden so getting, getting the um, young people to map that as well.
0: Dr Susan Pike telling Brendan Courtney about the International Geography Olympiad coming to Ireland next year. Today, with Claire Byrne's regular beginner's guides to some of the best music stars of all time, continue this morning with Connor Behan, DJ and host of The Request Show on 2FM, taking a look
7: back at 40 years of Madonna.
5: So, take us back to the start. Yes. Where did it all begin for Madonna?
7: She grew up in Detroit. She was born in 1958 and at five years old her mum passed away which kind of has become a big part of the Madonna story. In 1978 she moved to New York to become a dancer and spent time in bands and kind of finding her feet as an artist and in the early 80s emerged in the in the club scene in New York and then got a record deal and in 1982 dropped her first single called Everybody. Then in 1983 we had hits like Holiday, Borderline and Lucky Star and her debut album came soon after which is when we kind of got to know Madonna. Okay
5: so now we're going to skip forward to her second album and this yeah. is like a virgin,
12: like virgin touch for the very first time
7: like a virgin when your heart beats next to mine gonna give you
5: all my love boy my fears bad so that put her in the big league
7: that yeah. era, that time. Exactly. So that's the second album, which was called Like A Virgin." You've got the innuendo there. You have the video of her in a wedding dress on a gondola in Venice. She performed at the first ever MTV Video Music Awards in the same year, writhing around in that wedding dress, causing, you know, uproar, which is the first of many times she would do that. But with all the songs on the album from Like A to Material Girl, really underlined her impact on pop culture and he had all the wannabes like young girls were dressing like Madonna they had the bracelets and the lace gloves and they're doing the hair like her so it became like a real time of her establishment. so she's a
5: controversial pop star everybody wants to be like her at this time this is a good excuse for us uh, to play another track a little bit of another track from that album Material Girl like being associated with that nickname, Material Girl. I yeah. didn't know this about her. Yeah,
7: because obviously in the decades since, they go, it's the Material Girl. And <laughs> she's like, she, you know, gets really on her high horse and goes, that song was actually tongue in cheek and ironic. Because if you listen to the end, it's about a woman going, actually, I've gone the wrong way and this life of materialism is a bad idea. And that's been a Madonna thing for years. She's like, I actually meant it ironically. We're like we're all outraged. like It was actually a joke. So that leads into the 80s think of Papa Don't Preach on the next album True Blue another headline grabbing song that was a big blockbuster as well there was Live to Tell Open Your Heart La Isla Bonita these are all songs mm-hmm. that are still
5: we had that in our house on vinyl and we literally wore that album out playing it it was the <laughs> one where she's got her head yes. thrown back on the short cover short blonde hair yeah. her
7: covers there you go like, and that was a big reinvention for her that was a new look having gotten to know her another way on the previous album and I think those albums really set in stone the reinvention the controversy the things that have always been building blocks of her image since.
5: So by the end of the 80s then she's been a star for quite some time really well established and she's Always in the news, both for her career, but also the personal turmoil. That was around the time of the marriage to Sean Penn. Penn.
7: Yes, indeed. So that, you know, they got married around the time of True Blue and there was all kinds of headlines about fighting and squabbles and things that happened amongst their relationship. And Sean Penn famously would fight with a paparazzi who wanted to photos of them together. So by 1989, that marriage had ended in divorce after only a year of marriage. They'd been together for a while and just shy of 30, Madonna... Kind of wanted to get a bit more serious following kind of more teen pop vibe of previous albums and worked on Like a Prayer, which will be kind of an imperial phase and a big moment for her.
5: so cool, isn't it?
7: I think that's there, I love a lot of Madonna, Madonna songs as a fan but you can't really beat Like A Prayer like you, it's always going to be to me her signature song
5: and that was massive wasn't it for her?
7: yeah it was, a hu- I mean, it was a huge hit single and also again we're talking about controversy and headlines that song it's blend of section spirituality and like kind of the video featuring a black Jesus and kind of burning crosses in a field she was playing with very strong and volatile imagery and what's interesting is I think we might forget about this because it was bigger in the US at the time was Pepsi teamed up with Madonna to do an ad debut of this song and in the Pepsi ad which came out a couple of days before the video Madonna's watching old footage of herself it's in black and white it's quite an innocent sweet video and then when the actual music video came out that was so controversial that Pepsi had to back out of their deal but still had to hand over Madonna the millions that they had promised her in mm-hmm. the deal and only just in the last few weeks Pepsi are celebrating like 100 years or they're, they're going through old ads and resurfacing old imagery and they posted Madonna's ad online and Madonna reshared it saying this is where I began my illustrious career as an artist refusing to compromise my artistic integrity. So all these years uh, later they can pop out on Instagram but they pulled it from the telly 30 years ago basically. You
5: know looking back at that time I mean she was really no more than Sinead O'Connor pushing against boundaries and yes. it was really difficult to do it and she never resiled. I remember thinking how brave she was. She never resiled from her position. She wanted to be absolutely outrageous and nobody was going to tell her not to be that person.
7: Exactly and that was like a prayer. That was a blonde ambition to her. That was the Truth of the Dare slash In Bed with Madonna documentary that really showcased a woman at the peak of her powers who was not afraid, as you say, to push boundaries.
0: That's Conor Behan,
7: DJ and host of The
0: Request Show on 2FM, looking back on 40 years of the material girl with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this returning edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Suradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. We're back! until the next time
10: thank you for listening and good luck